Nice off drive, beautifully timed on the up. Full face of the bat. They should run forth, they go hard. Long boundary. And they're coming back, and that's good running. Just gets there. In fact, I'm not sure it is back down. This could well be out. Very casual in the last stride or two. Did he ground the batter? I think not. The Australians are very confident. A direct hit. It was a magnificent throw from the long boundary. Greg blew it, and if that's run out, that's very careless running. Welcome to the Dilla Prime All-Rounder Podcast. It's the 29th of October. It's 9am and we are talking about the 1999 Tour of Shame or alternatively known as the India-Australia Border Gavaskar Series. We're focusing on the Test Series for this time for all the Test lovers out there. Sanjay is my guest. Sanjay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Sanj, I think we covered 1999, what was happening in that year in an earlier podcast when we were looking at the World Cup. So I don't think we need to talk about what was happening in 99. But this was a very interesting series for a number of reasons. But I think we can both agree that the landscape, the cricket landscape in 99 was very different to what it is today and even what it was, say, in 2010. Yeah, very true. I mean, you had, I think, a lot of test cricketing nations that were still on kind of even levels. I don't think there was one clear dominating team as yet. I mean, you still had, you know, you had a pretty strong Sri Lanka after, you know, you talked about that in one an earlier podcast, them winning the World Cup in 96, but Sri Lanka were good. India were not, obviously not the same strength as they are today. Um, Australia were up and coming. I still, I don't, I don't think they were amazing yet. Um, so they weren't like an expectation to, to beat every team as they were in the early 2000s. And then you had South Africa, I think, which, which were the strongest test team. Pakistan were very strong. So it was a, a kind of even test playing field of countries. Australia was emerging as a test, as a test match behemoth. I, I think in 99, as you say, they were still finding their wings. They had shown some very positive results in the mid to late 90s, as we previously recalled, they beat West Indies for the first time in West Indies in the sort of mid 90s period. And that somewhat kickstarted a, a revitalization of the Australian team under Mark Taylor and then subsequently under Steve Waugh. In 99, we're talking about a team that has transitioned from Taylor to Steve Waugh. And Steve Waugh talks about it in his captaincy diaries where he really took on the challenge of fielding a unit that had a very strong focus on fielding, a great bowling attack led by McGrath and Warren, and an improving batting lineup that was still finding its feet with the emergence of the likes of Ricky Ponting, Justin Langer, and subsequently Matty Hayden, even though Matty Hayden didn't play in the series that we're about to talk about. So you're right. You're right about India as well. I think India probably, would you agree, in 99, they were proving that the 
that their reputation of being kings at home and paupers away was probably true. Very true. I think you take, take yourself back one more year from 1999. Australia go to India in 1998 for the Border Gavaskar series. India trounces Australia in the first two tests. It's a drubbing. If you look at the scorecards, it's one of the most one-sided contests in the first two tests. You know, everyone scores runs. You know, India, Tendulkar, Navjot Singh Sidhu taking Warren apart. And it's, you know, McGrath and Warren don't actually play the third test, but Australia actually win it. Um, Wasn't it Gavin Robertson? Yeah, Gavin Robertson. Yep, the off-spinner. So India were pretty formidable at home um, during that during that period. They never were they never that bad. So flat track bullies at home, they go away and they get absolutely torched. So I think heading into this series, Australia did have one to get over India. Um, and the context, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, but Steve Waugh being captain and also John Buchanan coming in as coach, which I think was important because, the, you know, Steve talks about it, but Steve and John Buchanan have a meeting where they talk about Australia wanting to leave a legacy. What is your legacy? Um, John Buchanan asks everyone going around and Steve Waugh, acutely says we want to be the dominators um the 1948 australian team which is regarded as the invincibles this team wanted to be known as the dominators so dominating every aspect of of the game so that's the kind of you know mentality that they had going in in 1999 so prior to the australia india series australia plays zimbabwe in zimbabwe they play in a one test match series which I wouldn't call it a series, but just a a one-test match. Australia wins comfortably. Then Pakistan comes to Australia, and that series, I think, is a rewatchable in its own right. Yes, the final scoreline was 3-0, but it starts a a streak that we find out that Australia continues throughout the early 2000s and 2001. And that Australia-Pakistan series... We should probably just cover it briefly. It's it's the prelude and the preview to the India-Australia series. The Pakistan team that comes to Australia, I thought was a juggernaut, had one of the best bowling at, uh, lineups still at the time with Saklain, Mushtaq, Wazim, Akram, Waka, Yunus, I think Azam Amud, and Shoy Bakhtar. And a batting lineup that was quite formidable with Inzi, Inzamam al-Haq, Saeed Anwar, among others, Ijaz Ahmed. Yusuf Yohana. Yusuf Yohana, prior to Moen his Khan. conversion. And while it was a 3-0 series, I think, I th- I think the Australians got a, a real challenge out of, that, out of that series, particularly that second test, where arguably some would say they should have lost, if not for some poor umpiring decisions, which we can get into when, when I talk about hot seat. But that really set Australia up. They had a really tough three test match series against the, uh, against the Pakistanis. And therefore they were coming into the India series, which was being played over the boxing day, new year's period with some confidence. Whereas India, their buildup was a test series in New Zealand. And while India played New Zealand at home in India and they won the series one zero, they're probably not getting the same, I suppose, um, experience on Australian test match pitches compared to the Australians. Yep, I think that's all true. I think the Indian lead up into this was obviously Sachin being captain as well, which I think was an you know it's a, another debatable topic whether that actually enhanced his cricket. He played well in the Australian series, which we can get to, but 
I don't think the captaincy ever was great for Sachin. And then into the series, as you said, I think the emergence of the Australian team really through Ian Healy's retirement before, you know, he had that last test, um, you know, against Pakistan, I think in Brisbane or was, was Gil, Gilchrist coming in for that test? I think Gilchrist came in for the first test in Brisbane. Yeah. And Ian Healy had like a, a walk-off in Brisbane because that was his home ground. Yeah, it was actually quite contentious. And Steve Wall covers, covers this point. But Trevor Holmes, who I think was the selector at the time, Ian Healy had made a request. He'd said, can I have my swan song in Brisbane? And Trevor Holmes had indicated that Gilchrist was the better player and they couldn't just give swan songs for test match cricketers. And I think that's fair, but it was a sign of what the Australian team was, which was if you were the best man up, you would get, you would get a test match. And ruthless. It was ruthless for someone who was a great servant for Australian cricket. And I don't think Shane Warne was happy about that either, but the Gilchrist came in in that Brisbane test and then that continued into the Indian series where Gilchrist was the stand-in keeper. Now, that build-up, an, an Indian journalist, I was just having a look at what was being said prior to that series. And an Indian journalist, Partha Ramchand, he had noted prior to, that, prior to that series, he said, it is difficult for even the most diehard Indian cricket supporter to be optimistic about India's chances on the eve of another test series in Australia. Both past record and present form two very important criteria when it comes to analysing a team's chances are very much against India. And I think that probably summed up the sentiment and feeling prior to that series. It's probably worth mentioning as well that India was without their former skipper, Mohammed Azaruddin, or Azaruddin, as some people have told me. Um, he was involved in this uh, match-fixing issue which curtailed his career and prevented him from playing 100 test matches. He finished on 99 test matches, I think, from memory. But I think that was a big loss for India coming into... When, when you're going to Australia, you need, a, you need a team that has had experience playing on Australian pitches and that extra bounce. So the Indian team that was playing in Australia were probably quite inexperienced in that sense, perhaps with the exclusion of Tendulkar, who had previously played since the late 80s in Australia. Yep, good points. Um, I was listening to a, um, an interview Damien Fleming was actually giving about the 99-2000 test series and the Australians in the lead up to it looked at the, the Indian batting lineup and five of the top six actually had averages above 50 or hovering around 50. And you can argue that you know a lot of them hadn't played many tests. So the opening bats had only played you know five to 10 tests. Obviously Sachin... You had Ganguly at the time was a very good test batsman. Um, the emergence of obviously VVS Laxman, which we can get to, and Rahul Dravid. So a formidable Indian batting lineup. But the Aussies looked at that and said 50, an average, a test match of average of 50 for five of the top six. This is a challenge for us. This Indian team's not going to be easy, but we don't think they, these guys deserve to be averaging 50. Let's see what they got on, on the bouncy wickets in Australia. So the, the mantra was let's try and bounce these guys out. Um, and which we can get to, but a formidable Indian batting lineup was torn to shreds by the Aussies. Surprisingly, I think Steve Waugh commented it was very complimentary of Saurav Ganguly prior to the series, considering that he was, or he viewed Ganguly as the second best batsman in the team. And I thought Ganguly was unlucky in some of his dismissals in that series, but clearly that reputation was 
put to the side after the series. Um, and, and we'll get to that. But I think probably it makes sense to go, get into hot seat because I've got a few, Sanjay. The first one I have in hot seat is touring record. In six tours in 52 years, the Indians had played, at, coming up to that time, 25 tests in Australia and only won three while losing 16. Asked about India's poor record on previous tours, Tendulkar said, quote, we have to start winning somewhere and this could be the right tour to start our winning streak. I know it'll be a tough tour, but at the same time, I'm confident the team doing well in Australia, end quote. The fact remained that India had only won one test abroad since 1986, and that was in Sri Lanka in 1993. That's remarkable. And that fortified that reputation they had, which was home track bullies and paupers away from home. And I, I actually was quite stunned to read that stat. Yeah, it is a pretty crazy start. I think when you think about it, when we were growing up, the Indians never really had a good pace bowling lineup. So for after Kapil Dev retired, after Kapil Dev retired, there was a period of 10, 15 years where the Indian bowling attack would consistently bowl, you know, gentle, medium pace. You know, often I've seen Saurav Ganguly actually opening the bowling for India. They never really had people who could bowl fast, and you can't win away from home against the likes of Australia, England, South Africa, New Zealand. You can't win without a good pace bowling lineup, and India just never had one. I mean, obviously, Javagol Srinath was the, the spearhead of this tour. And a great Indian fast bowler, no doubt, with, you know, bowling right arm over the wicket, he would swing it. But other than that, they really had no one. I had fielding, and I had it for a simple reason. I was reading one article where Mohammad Shadab Azaz, he had reported just prior to the series, quote, I also witnessed something I didn't quite like. After his batting practice, Ganguly was waved over by Kapil Dev and asked to take part in fielding practice. But the batsman sort of wandered over to where his kit was and hung around there. Ramesh, MSK Prasad, Devan Gandhi and Debashish Mahanti, however, quickly joined Kapil at fielding practice. After a while, Kumble took over from Kapil in leading the practices, while the Indian coach went to where Ganguly was to give him batting practice, chucking the ball from a short distance at the batsman." End quote. <laughs> While that quote might be somewhat, it might not mean much, I think it was reflective of the Indian mentality at the time, which was a mentality shared by a lot of subcontinental test cricketing nations. I'll include Pakistan in that unit, which was, I'm a cricketer, I'm a test match cricketer. My job is to bat from a bowler, my job is to bowl, but fielding is just some, it's a miscellaneous additional thing that's not that important. And that was reflective of Ganguly's, probably his entire career, which was a focus on batting and nothing else. But that mentality, I think, hurt the Indian team, which was, let's not worry about the one percenters. Let's just worry about what we're here to do, which is batting. And while Ganguly didn't get run out in the test series, it showed in the one day series where he, he did not give enough importance to running between the wickets and fielding, and it hurt him. Yep, <laughs> another good point. I think uh, the great old cricket analogy of catches win matches is very apt for the, the subcontinental teams in the, the, the 90s and the 2000s. Even today, you look at Afghanistan, Bangladesh, the up-and-coming subcontinental nations, and they don't have great uh, people who can field. They don't have, you know, I, I'm sure they have fielding coaches, but their fielding is still really atrocious. You even look at this World Cup, 
plenty of drop catches. The Indian fielding, on the other hand, you have, you know, Virat, Jadeja, those, the likes of them who take fielding very seriously. And those 1% has really hurt India when you'd only create a couple of chances with the new ball and you have to take them. I think you can probably argue that the best teams in the world always have one of the best fielding units in the world. And it's just emblematic of a, of a mentality, which is we care about all facets of the game. You can probably remember, I think both of us will just recall the famous, if we think of Wazim Akram and Waka Yunus, other than being fantastic swing bowlers of the ball, I will always remember them for their scowls after certain deliveries where it will go to slip and the ball will be dropped. <laughs> yep. And that was reflected. I think Park is, Wazim Akram probably could have had 200 additional test wickets had it been for a solid slips cordon. And that was probably the same issue that was uh, facing the Indian team with certain of their players just not giving enough uh, credence and importance to other aspects of the game. While it didn't show in this test series, I think it was a mentality. That's why I had it on the hot seat. Yeah, fielding. good one. I like it. The third hot seat I had was, uh, and just on that fielding, I want to give a shout out to Australia. I think for both of us, if we look at the ni late 90s and early 2000s, the one thing that we can tell about the Australian team, while they might have had collapses with the bat, they never gave up in the field. They always give 100%. Oh, definitely. And I want to shout out a couple of guys here. Mark Waugh, probably one of the best slippers to have ever played for Australia. Shane Warne, who has a famous drop in this series, which we can get to, but another a fantastic slipper. Ricky Punaponing goes on to be one of the greatest Australian fieldsmen of all time. Steve Waugh at Gully just dictating things. I mean, you have a cordon that just doesn't drop catches. And then you have da add Damian Martin at point you know, who comes in later on in the Australian test team, Andrew Simons in the ODI team in the early 2000s, just Roy. a juggernaut of a... Exactly. Third one I had was winning streak. This was, and we, we mentioned it briefly, but this was the start. Australia from October, 14 October 1999, when they beat the, the Zimbabwe cricket team in Zimbabwe, they're now on a four-match winning streak, having beaten Pakistan three times and Zimbabwe once. So they are approaching this India Test Series just viewing that let's keep winning and maybe we can be um, get on the start of something. Little did they know that they would soon surpass or equal the West Indies' great winning streaks of the late 70s, early 80s. So this was on the hot seat, which was how many times can Australia start winning a Test match? The last one I had on hot seat was standard of umpiring. Let's go back. We're, we're not in the days of VAR. We're not in the day to, uh, days of just referring decisions to a third umpire. We're in the days of you respect the umpire's decision and you will have umpires that may be from the country that the series is being played in. Yep. I think at that point, when you were a touring nation, you came to an acknowledgement that if you toured away, you were going to get a lot more stuff against you against the rub of the green. And I think that was fair for India in this series. Like, India didn't play that that great cricket, but they had chances here where they, the 50-50 calls really went against them. And the Aussies made them pay big time, but you had an Australian umpire, at least uh, one of the two umpiring in the three-test match series. And that really hurt um, India and also the, the opposition nations. And there were a couple of pretty bad, pretty bad decisions here. So that first test 
was Daryl Harper and Steve Dunn. From memory, I think we were just talking about this before. I agree with that, but I also think, to be fair, I've also seen some YouTube clips of Glenn McGrath bowling in Pakistan and having Inzamam al-Haq plumb th- on three separate <laughs> occasions and three consecutive balls and the umpire giving giving nothing away. And we all know the 2001 series in India. So to be fair, it's probably a product of when you play at home with that home crowd support, maybe it's natural for an umpire to get perhaps stuck in the wave of emotion and give decisions that are arguably more favorable to the home team. Having supported India in that series, you probably we probably look at all the decisions and view them from a different perspective, which was if you're the weaker team, you deserve a few more decisions your mm. way, but that's just not how it works. But this was umpiring was on the hot seat because there were some shocking decisions in this series. Um, and it ultimately resulted in some changes to world test cricket rules, which was that you need to have uh, neutral umpires for home series. Yep. I think a very good rule that was introduced. We can get to a, another India Australia series, which was famous, the 07 08 series, where there were a couple of shoddy umpiring decisions, but they were, those were neutral umpires. So I think from here on in, you can't re- really argue that a team's getting favorable decisions because they're neutral. Exactly. Should we go to top five moments or did you have anything else on the hot seat? The hot seat, I had, no, I just had the Australian reputation really coming in as a test cricketing nation. They just won four tests. Um, But to your point, I think this was a new coach, a new captain, a new team, new wicketkeeper with great surround of them. So they had Glenn McGrath, they had Shane Warne, but they were trying to build a legacy here. And I think, to build a legacy, you need to be formidable at home. And I think John Buchanan, you know, he changed a lot of methods in the Australian cricket test cricketing team. Um, he really brought a sense of culture. He, he changed a lot of things around. Um, he worked well with Steve Waugh. So I think I just had that, but I think you touched on it. Just ask Shane Warne about John Buchanan and he'll give you a completely different view. So I guess it depends on who you ask about the impact of coaches in cricket, but it's a good point. Top five moments. After this. Oh, you don't want to be ducking too much here at Adelaide. He's been given out LBW to a ball that didn't rise. And uh, I don't know where it... I think it's got Tendulkar on the arm, but obviously umpire Harper thinks that it was right in front. An attempted bounce at this uh, from uh, Glenn McGrath. And uh, it's hit him on the shoulder. It's taken a long time, uh, Daryl Harper, to think about it. And then given the Indian captain out, leg before wicket. He's got a duck. Big disappointment for him, and that is also for the crowd here. India 4 for 27. Sanjay, top five moments. I looked at the top five moments for this series, and I've done it in somewhat reverse chronological order. And I want you to jump in if I forget any, because it's a it was a test series, a three test series. It I'm going to miss some, but number five I had Steve Waugh's 150 in that first test. Putting it this way, India surprisingly starts off very well in that Adelaide first test. They have Australia in some trouble, as Richie Benner might say, in turmoil at four for 54. Day one, Venkatesh Prasad and Javagul Srinath somehow are taking wickets on a flat 
Adelaide pitch coming into that series with no form, just losing a lot of their first-class games. So the Indian bowling attack is just getting smashed by Australian state cricket teams. They have Australia 454, and then Ricky Ponting and Steve Waugh put on a massive partnership on that Adelaide pitch, basically take the game away from India. I thought it was a fantastic innings by an Australian captain and an emerging Australian captain in Ricky Ponting that really took probably took the series away even on that first day yeah good shout out i'd like to shout out ricky actually in this one i'm not sure if he's in part of your top five as well but if we just count ricky in this he was having a pretty bad domestic summer i mean the first two tests against pakistan he was really struggling against wazim he was getting at lb he was walking across his stumps like he like he does but he wasn't having a great series and then he turned up against pakistan in the third test so into the, the Indian series, he had a little bit of form, but he was still struggling. And yeah, to your point, 454, and I think they had a 239-run partnership. Ponting gets 125. I think he's the more, of aggress- the more aggressive batsman. And from 454, I think what the Australian team became very renowned for was one massive partnership to save a batting lineup. Either the tail wagged or Gilchrist would come in at seven, or it would be the number six partnership and in this case it was war and ponting i mean pretty formidable partnership at six it's akin to jim and dwight going on a sales trip in the office uh, that's how i view steve war and ricky ponting they just they came up clutch they were it's it's jerry and george in seinfeld it's uh larry and richard in curb your enthusiasm i don't know if you watch curb yeah. your enthusiasm <laughs> it's jim and dwight in the office that's that's how i'm going to compare it because it was just a clutch innings from both of these great test match batsmen. Um, I had it as number five. Yep. And I was just re-watching the highlights as well. And at 4 for 54, India bring on Ganguly, you know, to bowl some gentle medium paces. It just seems as if, how did India get those wickets? Um, and who's going to get these guys the out? Yeah. And <laughs> Anil Kumble, I know into the series, the Aussies were like, how do we play Anil Kumble? And right arm medium? Right arm gentle medium. That's what they thought. Just play him as like a medium pacer. I mean, Kumble is not going to take wickets on a first day Adelaide pitch. Well, yeah. That's I think the- it's somewhat miraculous that India had Australia 4 for 54. <laughs> <laughs> but then back then, when you have them 4 for 54, I don't think Australia still didn't have that reputation that Gilchrist is then going to save the. No, they didn't. Save Australia's bacon. The, that reputation was slowly starting to emerge with Gilchrist having scored a lot of runs in the Pakistan series. Yep. But yeah, it was a fantastic partnership between two great Australian batsmen. It's a number five moment. Number four, it's that same test, but Damien Fleming's near hat trick and five wickets to win the match for Australia. Five for 35. I think Damien Fleming, and I know you listen to a podcast about, about Damien Fleming and I want you to give it a shout out because it, it deserves one. But... Fleming gets a bit of a... I think he's become an underrated bowler in Australian folklore and Australian, in Australia's test cricket history. He was a really good outswing bowler. He didn't have a long test career, but I think he was probably at the peak of his powers in and around this time. And he was able to utilise great outswing to remove the Indians. I thought some of the shots that the Indian batsman played to get out was quite shocking even that hat trick ball that Shane Warne drops it's a it's a howler, <laughs> a ha- it's howler a of a show. he's bowling it's one meter outside off stump and Javagul Srinath is trying to play 
an audacious cut shot on a hat-trick ball. I mean, use your brain, mate. But 5 for 35 wins the match for us. I think they were going to win the match anyway, but I thought it was a, we needed to give them a shout-out because it was, it was a great spell. Yep, top spell. Um, so listening to that, to your point, Damien Fleming, he first played against India in 1996, was actually his first game against India. He didn't know much about the Indian batting lineup, is what he says. He, you know, he just wanted the ball quick. He, um, he was kind of lacking a bit of confidence, I think, 96 to 98. He wasn't picking up that many wickets. He wasn't the go-to Australian bowler. And what he says actually reinvigorated his confidence was Buchanan actually told him, mate, I want you to open the bowling with Glenn McGrath, um, share the new ball. Um, and for that, I think if any, you know, being a bowler in cricket, when you open the bowling, you get a sense of confidence. Just the team has to, is relying on you to take wickets and you really need to be the strike, the strike man. And so going into that series, he was, you know, lacking a bit of confidence. The Australian bowling attack really only had Glenn McGrath. If you think about it, you know, Dizzy Gillespie had gotten injured in Sri Lanka in a really bad injury with Steve Waugh. He was unavailable. You had Michael Kasperowitz, who was a pretty good bowler. Casper. Casper from, from Queensland. Um, but he wasn't anything great. I mean, he would bowl 130, 135. Casper was the Oscar or Stanley of the Australian <laughs> cricket team. That's a good, that's a good comparison. So I just you, want to give some comparisons that if there are non-cricketing fans but watch The Office, that they'll appreciate. Yeah, for sure. Would you agree, Oscar Stanley? Oscar Stanley. Yep, I agree. He, um, he deserves a shout-out. And so you had Damien Fleming opening the bowling, and we'll get to the other bowler that comes into this series, but really it was Damien Fleming and Glenn McGrath. And Flem comes in, gets his best ever test haul. Um, he has a chance to pick up his second test match hat-trick after he got one in 1994. Just misses out because he tells the story of Shane Warne. He, Damien Fleming already knew that Shane Warne was going to catch it. And so he was celebrating. And this is in his podcast. In his podcast. He was, yeah. he was saying, I, was, I had already had my hands up. I was, I was ready to, to go off and celebrate. So can you give a shout out to the podcast, which is it a... Yeah, it's a... So Damien Fleming basically comes on. It's a couple of Aussie battlers, just like us, who, um, who's just, who want to talk about the greatest series that was ever played. Um, so they just talk about this series, which is called... The podcast is called The Greatest Season. That was Presents. Um, and in this one, Damien Fleming comes on. It's called The Final Frontier. Steve Waugh famously used that as his, as his phrase to win in India. He called it, he labeled it the final frontier. And I know your first podcast with Sid was on this, yeah. but it's a good podcast. Flem really gets into the details of Buchanan, the lead up, the 1996 World Cup where they, where they beat India in India. Um, the lead up in 1998 where a young VVS Laxman first came to prominence and the Aussies really coming to terms with this Indian batting lineup and who was the strengths, who were the, who were the weaker links. I love um, that there's a 90-minute podcast on previewing a 1999 test uh, series. I, yeah. I don't we, know. we need that for the health of and for the future of test You need these 90-minute podcasts about random people, series. You, you really need people like us listening to it too, giving them shout-outs 24 years on. Just imagine there's probably a 90-minute podcast about previewing a New Zealand-Bangladesh <laughs> test series, but that's what you need for the future of test cricket. Sanj, number three. I had Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar's 1-1-6 in the second test out of a total of 238. We'll come to it when we talk about Don performances in the post-series reaction, but it was a majestic innings that 
solidified Sachin's reputation as being able to play on all types of wickets and in all conditions. And I think it solidified Sachin's reputation as one of, or if not the best batsman in world cricket. Totally. I think my biggest memory from this series, so I was only seven years old, but I remember this series pretty vividly, strangely enough. And I remember we were all gathered around the TV. Sachin had come out to bat at the MCGs, the second test. And I think India it was Venkat. Venkat was at yeah, our house. Venkat, yep. Venkat's probably not listening to this podcast. He used to sing He used to um, sing Carnatic music, which is an Indian type classical music with us. And yep. he came over <laughs> when Tendulkar was batting. So Tendulkar was batting. Um, Australia just got 400, which they used to get in every test inning. So India are in some trouble. They need to score runs. Sachin comes out. I'm seven. I'm like, I'm a massive Sachin fan. And I go to Dill and Venkat and I'm said, I warns bowling, um, you know, just started the innings. And I go to Dill and Venkat and I say, I can smell Sachin dancing down the wicket and hitting a six off this ball here. Next thing you know, Warn tosses it up. Sachin dances down the wicket, plants it straight over the side screen. Six at the MCG. Well, what a, what a shot and also what an innings. I think one of the best such an innings I've seen, if I can recall. So that's partly true, but you've fabricated the story because it was Venkat that predicted that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with I, what I predicted it, but yeah, that's that's true. So we're, what, yeah, we're sitting down and Venk, it's Venkat that Venkit, says, yeah, Venkit so says my uh, gone. there's going to be a six on this ball. And then, as you say, Tanika walks down the pitch and smashes one for six. Um, great innings. The fact that it was in a losing match, probably in, in the in the scheme of things, you it, it detracts from it slightly because when you, when you play great innings, you want it to be in a winning performance. But then the fact that nobody else scored in that innings, it's hard to criticize Tendulkar when he scores a hundred against a top class bowling attack. Yeah, which, you which, can't really criticize him. I think nineteen ninety eight, Flem talks about it. But Sachin has, I think he says the apex of Sachin's career was 1998. Is that Sharjah? Sharjah, Dust Storm, you know, 1998, yeah. Border Gavaskar. Sachin was on a different planet and the Aussies didn't know how to get him out. I think he scored 2,000 runs in that calendar year. So into 1999, Sachin is playing the best cricket of his life. He's 26. He's carrying the Indian batting, batting order. And the Aussies don't know how to get him out. And so they, the only person they devise a plan to in this test series is Sachin. Um, Flem's actually scared of bowling to him. He, he remembered 1996. He's like, the only player that I didn't want to bowl to was Sachin. He would hit me all over the park, back foot cover drive, straight down the ground, pull shots. He could play it all. So Flem was like, don't give me the ball when Sachin was bowling. And so they gave it to Warren and McGrath. Sachin's innings reminds me of earlier park cricket and just schoolboy cricket days when there's one good player in that, in, yeah. a, in a schoolboy team. And... If you get his wicket, the whole team collapses. Number two moment, Binger, Brett Binger Lee, making his debut at the MCG in the second test. And little did we know, his pace would mean a lot. He takes five for 47. And it's worth a shout out because it's his first test match and his raw pace really had an impact on that Indian team. Yeah, I want to get into this actually a little bit. Brett Lee in my opinion, could have been Australia's best fast bowler ever. I think he had the potential. He would swing the ball at 160 clicks with that, you know, the, the blonde hair, 
you know, the blue eyes, just a classic Australian blonde cricketer that everyone loved, everyone could get around. He was labelled the new Shane Warne, basically. So Shane Warne was a bit like, well, who's this new guy? The Shane Warne of fast bowling. Shane Warne of fast bowling. And that 5 for 47, I don't think he's ever bowled quicker. And I think he consistently hit 160 in that spell. And I don't think I've seen Brett Lee bowl like 160 since that 1999-2000. And that's why we can get to it. But I think, controversial statement, but I think the Don performance could could have been Brett Lee in this series. And I think that first innings at the second test, that 5 for 47. Um, what a spell. I think he also goes on to, I think, injure Sadagop and Ramesh's thumb. Mm. Um, Sadagop doesn't go out to bat in the next innings because he, he literally asked for sympathy. So he gets hit by a Brett Lee ball that lifts off a length, hits him on the thumb. He takes a 15-minute injury timeout. He um, goes to he, he famously looks at Justin Langer, who's feeling its short leg, and Justin Langer's just giving him donuts, nothing. He's just like, mate, I've gotten hit on the head multiple times. I got smashed by Curtly Ambrose and Courtney Walsh. Like, I'm not giving you anything here. And so that Brett Lee spell, I think, did more damage to the Indian lineup than it, that we could have actually seen in the scorecard. It was... It was five wickets, technically, but it was the damage, as you say, to the psyche of the Indian team. And it solidified or reinforced that reputation that India couldn't play on on pitches where there was a lot of bounce. Yep. And for someone making his debut to have such an impact, it's a bit cool what you say about Brett Lee possibly being Australia, one of Australia's greatest bowlers had, had he continued in that sort of trajectory. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, we can have it as an embrace debate one day because I think it's always hard for really fast bowlers or really quick bowlers to have that sort of reputation because there are going to be occasions where they just go for runs. Happened to Shoibakta, happens to Mark Wood in a, current day's, um, in a current day context, but it's a fair point. Number one moment, Sanj, and I've got an honourable mention and usually I'd mention it last, but because it's part of the third test, I want to mention it afterwards, but... I thought the number one moment was Justin Langer's 2-2-3 in the third <laughs> test. While the series was technically over, I think in test cricket, you still give respect to each test given how much effort and time goes into a test match and you still give it the importance that it deserves. JL's 2-2-3, it was the highest, uh, highest score for that test match. They're playing at the SCG. It is the home of probably big scores big innings it's that sort of wicket where it'll get a bit of turn but if you get in you can score and I thought JL's innings just was emblematic of the batsman he was to become yep good shout out he I think he batted three in this series if I'm not mistaken and he then goes on obviously to have a great opening partnership the greatest I think with Matty Hayden and Justin Langer and obviously Alfie Langer becomes coach. Um, but I think Justin Langer at that point hadn't really solidified himself in the team. He was looking for an innings to really kickstart, you know, that opening bat and that the concept of him becoming a great batsman. He had a very, obviously a great ton against Pakistan in the second test in Hobart with Gilchrist. I think one of the great greatest partnerships that Australia has seen, you know, that number six bat, number six partnership chasing down 369. But Justin Langer, yeah, 2-2-3 two, two, against a kind of demoralized Indian bowling lineup, I must say. But a good innings. I wouldn't call it an innings I remember at all um, because at that point, you know, the series was done. 
But I like it. I mean, scoring 223 in any test is difficult. I think at that point it was the highest test score by an Australian against India, I think. Um, so, you know, decent shout-out, I think. Fact-checkers will, will confirm that in confirm due course. It. I mean, we can't... So, JL's 223, it also complements Ricky Ponting, who scores another century in that third test. He scores 141 or some uh, around that score. And we've just... Basically, in my top five, I haven't even included Ponting, and he had two centuries. So Ponting had mm. clearly played a very important role in, in that series. I had one honourable mention, and I don't want to be a hypocrite because my honourable mention, Sanjay, was VVS Lakshman, very, very special. Vangi Parappa Venkatasai Lakshman's 167 at the SCG. And just like what you said about, I think a lot of Indian Australian fans or Indian fans will remember that innings because it was in a losing it was a losing encounter, but it was an innings that we just hadn't seen from VVS before. And it was a marauding innings where he just basically flayed the Australian attack all, all over the ground. But then we can't be hypocrites because VVS probably knew when he came out to bat that India had no chance of winning. So there was a different level of pressure on him. He probably had no pressure to score. And therefore... I can't put it as a top five moment because it had no impact on the series. Yeah, I think and that's I thought fair. JL's impact was more, even though Australia was winning 2-0, Australia has a winning streak to continue. Australia has to continue its, yeah. continue solidifying its reputation. But I think I wanted to give him an honourable mention, VVS, because that innings was, if you watch it, watch it on YouTube, it's some of the best hitting you'll see. Yep, totally. I think Australia at that point had India on the ropes, obviously 2-0 down. India had been all up for 150 in the first innings. Australia scores 500. So think about that context. And, it's and they declared. And they declared. And so Steve Waugh um, and his fielding placements, He, I think he had five slips, two gullies, an extra cover point, a cover point, cover. So we had like a nine and one field. And he just told BVS, if you want to hit, you know, if you want to hit through the covers, hit it, be my guest. And he duly obliged. He also played the short ball better than any of the other Indian batsmen in that tour. And I think that 167, if you look at it, I think he, he scores what most of his runs in boundaries, right? He doesn't really run. He never, he never was a great runner, but 167 of 198, I think. Um, so yeah, very high strike rate, smashes the ball all over and really sets the tone for VVS to have the wood over the Aussies. I think from then on for the next eight years, he's the one batsman that was the thorn of the Aussies in the Indian batting lineup, and you know, so many, so many great series that India and Australia have had have been built upon VVS Laxman innings. Have I missed any top five moments? You did tell me before that you think you thought I'd, I'd miss some, but I think I've I been pretty one. comprehensive. I had one, and that was Dave and Gandhi's dismissal in the first test. Top five. Mo- oh, okay. Yeah. Not not at a top. Like I wouldn't obviously put it as a one, two, three, four moment. I the was going to more have it. Yeah, the run and also I think how he gets out, he gets dropped actually after the first test, um, but he gets caught at I think short leg I think to just a ball that just lifts off a, uh, a bit of a you know like a, a classic Glenn McGrath ball, and I think Devon Gandhi Flem talks about it. He had I think he'd got eighty eight against New Zealand. He it was averaging fifty after two tests. So the Aussies looked at it and said, why is this guy averaging fifty? His obviously first class average was pretty solid at the time, but. They just said, let's just bowl him a couple of short balls, see how he reacts. And so Glenn McGrath duly obliges. I think the second ball that he bowls to him just lifts off a length. And 
Devin Gandhi has no idea how to play this ball and he just fends it straight to short leg and he gets dropped. I don't think he plays a test after this first test. So it ends his career. And I think it really ended India's chances of doing anything in that test series. That's why I had it. That's it, it's a good shot too. Nice way to reach 100. A very, very good innings in the context of this series of the match. Absolutely brilliant. First test 100, like 17 in first class cricket now. Second on this trip. Now the post-series reaction, Creek Info in, in early 2000s after the series wrote, quote, for those who may have expected a more competitive and enthralling series, it also sadly served as yet another celebration of the twin abilities of Australia's batsmen to take toll of flagging attacks and for its own bowlers to work their way through an opposing batting list. Nevertheless, there was some time for three significant individual highlights all the while. Justin Langer chalking up several notable feats in the course of scoring his first test double century. Ricky Ponting making an excellent century of his own. And Vivius Lakshman registering his maiden, maiden test hundred in bravely inspiring manner. That probably was more reflective of the third test, but just showcase that there were more Australian highlights than Indian highlights in that series. Yep. Actually, I just remembered something that I was going to say emblematic of how poor India was in this series was Ajit Agarka. And I think Ajit Agarka, for those who don't know, he was actually the fastest Indian bowler to get 50 ODI wickets. He picked it up in 21 ODIs, a pacey bowler, skinny bowler. He has one of the greatest test bowling spells in Adelaide four years later. So shout out to that spell that wins India the first test in, I mean, not the first test, but makes a one all in 2003. But Ajit Agarka this time had tunned up um, before in test cricket, decent batsman. So he was regarded as an all-rounder and he comes into this series and he proceeds to get, I think four golden ducks and a couple of, a couple of ducks. So six consecutive ducks against Australia in this series, a feat that I don't think, I don't think even McGrath could have matched, but pretty sure shows how bad that Indian batting lineup was for someone who scored a hundred, someone who scored a hundred. There's two jokes with Ajit Gaka. One of the jokes was, and these are all really lame Indian uncle jokes, but it was someone said to Ajit Gaga, how much did you score? And he said, one million. And he said, how? He said, I got one and then I got six zeros, six ducks. So that's why he scored a million. And I think this needs to be verified because this might just be some old folklore tale that's made up. But apparently Ajit Gaka was, I think he came to the Mumbai um, the Mumbai system. I could be completely wrong. But apparently he came out as a batsman first. And then Sachin Tendulkar spotted him in the nets and said, mate, batting's not the go for you if you want to make the Indian team. Become a fast bowler and you've got a better chance. And then he transitioned to oh, wow. becoming a fast bowler. Um, please someone verify that. But that's what I, <laughs> that's what I heard. But yeah, good call, on, good call on Ajit Agarka. I think he probably reflected the Indian team at the time, which was fast bowling struggled and with a, with a long tail, you're never going to win a series over. Yeah. Um, and to you your know, point overseas. earlier, Sachin or bust. So once you get Sachin's wicket, you're into the tail essentially. Exactly. Uh, the man of the series was quite contentious. It was ultimately awarded to Sachin Tendulkar. He averaged 47 for that series 
we did have him in the top five for his 116. He had two other 50s in the series. When I look back, I think there were only two possible, there were, there were two other um, individuals who probably should have won the man of the series. I thought Ricky Ponting yep. probably should have won. He hit two centuries in that series, one where Australia is four for 54 at Adelaide. I'm not sure what the selectors or the committee was thinking when they awarded it to Tendulkar. I understand the rationale, which is he was one batsman playing against a famed bowling attack and managed to still average 47 with some unlucky decisions. He was given that famous LBW where it hits his shoulder, hits his head. Daryl Harper gives him out. He's also given out somewhat unfairly in Adelaide where Shane Warne bowls it around his legs, hits his leg, gets caught. Uh, Justin Langer takes a catch at um, Sealy mid on and it doesn't come close to his bat. So there are two times where he probably was unlucky, but I still think Ricky Ponting with two centuries probably deserved a man of the series and perhaps even Glenn McGrath with 18 wickets for the series. Yep, definitely. I think a shoddy decision by everyone involved to give it to Sachin. You know, he was the only player that turned up for India, but then again, to your point, Ricky Ponting single-handedly saved Australia in that first test. And Glenn McGrath, I mean, what more do we need to say about Pigeon? I mean, what a stalwart. Would, wouldn't give you runs, economical with the ball, and he would pick up the most important wickets. So obviously in 2001, we know that he targeted Saurav Ganguly. He'd always target the Indian, like the opposition captain, and he had targeted Tendulkar into this. He didn't get him out many times, but he, I mean, what a player. I mean, nothing more to say about Glenn McGrath. Would you believe that, Sanjay? I wanted to give a shout out to the Indian openers. Each test, first, second, third, India had a different opening uh, batting lineup. So in the first test, they had, I think it was uh, Devan Gandhi and Sadagopan Ramesh. In the second test, they had VVS Lakshman and... Sadagopan? Was it Southern Open? And yeah. then third test, they had MSK Prasad. Prasad and VVS, yeah. And VVS. And if you're changing your opening um, batters for each test, it clearly means something's not working. And I just haven't seen that before. Perhaps it's probably been in some Pakistan test series because I've seen some Pakistan test series where they just rotate their whole team test after test. But that probably, that stood out for me as a, from a statistic standpoint. Good one. Indian openers never had good ones, I think, up until Virinda Sewa came onto the scene and, and really broke it broke it open. Gotham Gambi. And Gotham, yeah. I want to skip over the Oscars because there's, you just can't make a movie about this. It's, <laughs> uh, I mean, you could from an Australian perspective, but if it's just... For, you're not making any money because if it's not being shown in India, India, Indian fans are not going to be watching a three-test series where it's 3-0 to Australia and therefore the movie's not going to make any money. Yeah, and the great cricket is not getting any views for their analysis of this. Sans, let's finish with this. It's an embrace debate point. Shout out to First Take and Undisputed, although I don't think they've ever spoken about cricket on their shows. Does there need to be a rule that test series in the future must be a minimum of three or five tests? What's your view? So I like giving black and white answers. And I think for the four test cricketing nations that prioritize test cricket. No, I said all test series. All test series. Yeah, and you can go into okay. it, but what's your first answer? My first answer is no to that. I think you want a series to be competitive if it's going to last more than three tests, firstly. And I think if you look at recent years, 
the really competitive series and the watchable series have been the Ashes. I think the Border Gavaskar Trophy. I think you put it in that category. And then maybe you'd put a South Africa-England series as well into that category. I think outside of that, it's difficult for me to, to name many series that have caught my eyes like more than three tests. I think, so back to my answer, I would say the big four test playing nations, it's actually big three, but India, England, Australia, I think definitely have to be five test series when they all play each other. So the Ashes is already five tests. India, England is now five tests. And I think when Australia play India, I would like it to be five tests. I, I, I think the public would take to five tests pretty easily. I think when you take out, maybe you include South Africa in that, but test cricket in South Africa is waning. We know that the, the funding's not there. But I think if you take all the other countries out, I don't think you want a five test series at all. I think three test series max, maybe potentially for South Africa and New Zealand. Then when you go to Sri Lanka, Pakistan, those likes where test cricket's really not given the importance that it deserves, I think you can't be playing three tests. I think two test series, what they're doing right now, I think is fine. I think even though it might come to the detriment of test cricket over the next 40 years with, you know, they're not going to play as many tests. I think the format today as is, is what's going to keep test cricket alive. The major series, you play five tests and the ones that aren't major series, you restrict it to two or three. So my short answer is also no, but I am more strongly in favor of odd number of matches for any test series what i mean by that is i think for the top eight test nations or even top 10 so excluding afghanistan as a test assume let's exclude afghanistan but include bangladesh and zimbabwe and maybe not zimbabwe but bangladesh and uh, west indies any test series that is played between those nations has to be three tests in my view i don't care if Bangladesh is playing Australia in a test series, it has to be three tests, even if it's in Australia. Yes, played in Cairns and Darwin for all for all I care, but it needs to be three tests. And the reason I say that is, is that for the future of test cricket and for the growth of the game, teams like Bangladesh, even teams like West Indies, they need to play more cricket. They need to, those batsmen and those players need to have experience playing in a series where if they lose one test, it's not the end of it. While we might think the result is already predetermined because the strength of the nations are, are so contrasting and so different, I just think we need it for the game. If we agree that test cricket is important, then we need to give value to those series. We can't just be having two test series where after one test, it's, the outcome is already, is already done. While there might be a lack of competitive series in the short term if bangladesh west indies pakistan new zealand are all getting receiving these three test matches each time they play it'll encourage them to invest more at the test at the at the test match level and for players there will be greater incentives for them to play more test cricket i think for the developing nations like netherlands afghanistan zimbabwe you can reserve just they can play the off the occasional one test match. So if Afghanistan comes to Australia, perhaps Afghanistan was supposed to play Australia in a one-off test match. And I think they should encourage that more and more where just come prior to a big series. Like if India is playing Australia in a five test match series, bring Afghanistan for one test match before. They can play at a, at a local venue because it's probably not gonna garner the support as, a, as, a, as another nation. But 
encourage that more and more because it's important for the game. So I think we need odd number of test matches so that we can always have a result. But we've just got to find ways and perhaps there's ways in which we can change some of the test match rules for those matches where it'll always end up, we'll have a result rather than a draw. But that's not the debate today. I just think I'm more in favor of one, three or five. Good points you make. I mean, if you've got a message for your man, Saurav Ganguly, head of the BCCI, I mean, maybe he takes some of that criticism on board. Um, I think your point on one test series, I think Ireland does that in England right now, which I really like. You know, Ireland coming for a one-off test series and then India playing five. I think that's really strong. I think where this falls apart is the financial impact and how contracts are now structured. Um, I know Rob Key with the England setup you know, very recently has now given multi-year contracts to players to ensure that they don't sign up for foreign leagues. Um, so they're available for England selection. And actually a majority of the English players actually want to play for England. So they all signed up to these multi-year contracts. They increase the pay um, because Rob Key cites the fact that Mark Wood signed up to play in Pakistan and the Caribbean, and he's going to miss um, some tests against another test, na- test playing nation. And Rob Key said, we can't be losing Mark Wood um, to test cricket. So they brought in this system of multi-year contracts. And I think you look at Pakistan did that, Sri Lanka has done that. And it doesn't incentivize people to make money playing test cricket, incentivize them more to play in foreign leagues. So I think if that's going to be the future of the game, it's going to be difficult to, for these smaller nations to actually survive playing test cricket. So we need to find a mechanism whereby the big, the big nations still play test cricket. It's viewed. I think that's where the product is. And the developing nations, to your point, maybe play one to three, but there's no money in it. So I don't know how that survives medium term. Yeah, it's my solution probably, as Vero says, it doesn't get past the governing committee because the smaller nations will just say the money's not in it for us. If New Zealand's New Zealand wouldn't survive if they just played test cricket. Exactly. Or the West Indies. But it's food for thought because if cricket fans truly appreciate test cricket, then we can't just appreciate test cricket when it's Australia versus South Africa or Australia versus India or England versus India. If you're a test cricket fan, then you need to be, a, you need, what's that quote? If you don't appreciate me at my worst, then you don't appreciate, then you don't get me at my best. <laughs> so if you're not appreciating a three test match series between West Indies and Bangladesh or West Indies and New Zealand, then you don't deserve the border Gavaskar or India England test series. So as test cricket fans, I'm imploring you, give some respect to some of the smaller test series because it'll help you in the long term. And I'm going to leave it at that. I like it. See you soon.